Hi, I'm Mike Shero, the CEO of the C12 Group, and I use the ideas from the book Essentialism to improve our customer satisfaction and innovation focus such that our business has grown faster than any of our competitors in our space the last three years in a row. You're listening to Action Path, hosted by Steve Cunningham. Mike, thanks so much for being here. I'm excited to be here. And I am excited as well. So let's start off with the, from the very beginning. Who are you and what do you do? The deep personal questions. Yeah. So I'm Mike Shero, and I get to be the CEO of something called the C12 Group, which is a uh, international peer advisory program for Christian CEOs and business owners. Awesome. So you and I met in a very unique uh, way. Mm -hmm. uh, one of our customers actually introduced us uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. And, you know, since then you've become a, a good friend, uh, a mentor. And so I'm really excited to be talking with you here today about one of the many books that I know you've read. Let's let's bring it all the way back to where you grew up. How did, let's let's talk about the journey getting here today. Well, that's part of why you and I have kindred spirits, right? I'm 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 quasi Canadian. I'm like Russian Canadian. I grew up in Alaska. It's more more Russian than Canadian, but more Russian. But sure. <laughs> Depending upon how you look at who owned things, yeah. So I grew up in Alaska. Um, it's funny. I moved to Texas 12 years ago. Was in Chicago before that. My first day in Texas on the job. I was dealing with a guy in Dallas and he was like, are you that Yankee they sent down here? And I was like, I, I'm, I'm Alaskan. It's more like other. It's not really Yankee or not Yankee, but yeah, from Alaska. Been living in Texas about 12 years. And what was your first job out of school? Out of school? Okay. Because I did a lot of jobs in school. Let's actually, you know, we, you and I talked a little bit about that before. I think you were, you had a couple of interesting jobs while you were in school. Let's jump into the story there. Sure. Yeah. I was, I was talking to a guy I was mentoring a few days ago about career stuff. And, I, you know, I think we all have the dream job. And he's like, well, I mean, you got a dream job. Like, how'd you get it? And I was going back going, well, I, I actually had 19 non-dream jobs before I got to the dream job. So most of us do that. Yeah. Um, so I think after the typical run of everything from construction, concrete, maintenance work, um, call center jobs, was working for the Walgreen company. So there's this their headquarters was literally a mile from my college in Chicago. And so I got a job with a subsidiary they were doing um, in healthcare strategy work. So I did that. And at the same time, kind of a cool deal, this 79-year-old man showed up on my college campus one day looking for a computer lab. And as I'm walking in there, trying to help this old guy who I thought was a professor, he hired me. He's actually starting a business at age 79, a financial services company. And he was looking for some kid to run a computer for him. He's like, well, you you must know how to use the computer. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, the computer. Yes, I do. And uh, he's like, well, you want to help me start a business? I'm like, you're 79 years old. Why are you starting a business? And he said, well, I retired, um, but all my friends, they start dying, and I realize retirement will kill you. Like, it's not good. <laughs> so I got to get something to do, and I don't want to work for anybody anymore, so I'm starting my own company. And so I helped him start his financial services company. So we do that on the weekends and evenings while working for this big corporation during the week. And I, I remember you telling me one of the stories about you're working while you're in school and you enter, you're in a business class and the professor was talking about mm -hmm. how something was supposed to work. I'm not going to spoil the story. I'll let you tell it, but let's, yeah. let's talk about that one. So it's funny how looking back, things seem so strategic. And at the time it was just necessity. So I'm, I grew up in a poor family, first person ever go to college, my family. And so when I was going to school, I was taking out tons of loans and I was working two, three jobs until I eventually got a full-time job. So I was in full-time 
school, full-time work. And that was just nuts. You know, 18 credits, 45 hours a week work. And it's the only way I could make that work was um, I'd read some John Maxwell stuff around having a really disciplined calendar. So I had a calendar of like 10 minute increments. So I'd be like, read, reflect, travel, you know, every minute was spoken for. And then I found out what I had to do is make all my business issues. I needed to make them classroom projects. And I tried to make any class assignments become a business issue. So that way they could kind of symbiotically solve one another, which was efficient. It also became really cool because oftentimes in school, you're learning theory and it's easy to learn to pass the test. So most of my friends were like, how do I get past the final? And I was too, but I was just like, and how do I solve this issue at work that's due Monday? And so it changed them. So I was like an HR class. I remember we were, we were doing, um, how do you terminate employees and like labor laws around discrimination? So I came to work, applied it, went back to class next week. And I was like, hey, professor, I, uh, I was trying to apply the principles from last week. And I think I did it wrong because I, I was firing this employee on Friday. And my HR department said I did it wrong. And I, I skipped some steps. And he's like, what do you mean you were applying this stuff? And I was like, well, I have 64 employees and I had to fire somebody. And so I was trying to use the best principles you had. And he's like, well, what are you, what are you doing applying this stuff? Like out of a classroom, like this is, we're trying to discuss this. And, but for me, it made everything have to be real. You know, management, marketing, all those things. I was going back saying, okay, well, how do I apply this today? Because I don't have time for it to be just fluff. I don't have extra brain space to just be learning theory detached from my business case. So it kind of forced, I basically got the advantage of a lab, a business lab for four years which yeah. is awesome. And there's, there's so much to unpack in that story. And we don't have time to do that today, but just the way people are being taught in schools and the idea that you shouldn't be applying those things at your, or to anything. Mm -hmm. You should wait till you get out into the real world. That That's crazy. Well, so one more fun story on that. So I think the intersection of reality with education, which you and I could probably do a whole other podcast on. Um, the final class I took was a a course on change management and strategy. And it was a competitive course where every, you formed a company and every company had to compete. And every week there was like a first, second, third, fourth, fifth place. So you'd get an A and there'd be an F. And so I was competing and it was this business case around a music recording studio or a recording label and what they should do. And it came down to me versus this one other guy competing for the A. And we both had good theories. And the professor's like, well, you know, who should win and why? And I said, well, I should win because my idea would actually work. And he's like, well, that's kind of, that sounds like hubris. Like what makes, why is yours better? I was like, well, it's not better. It's just that it would work. And his <laughs> is good, but wouldn't work. And like, on what basis? I said, well, I, I called the CEO of the record label and asked him, hey, if you were faced with this situation, you had to choose option A or option B, which one would you choose? And he said he would choose mine for entirely emotional reasons, that he had a bias. He would never approve option B. And so at some point, someone's going to have to decide. And in this case, the CEO of that company would would do my plan. He wouldn't do the other person's plan. <laughs> and the other kid was like, well, that's not fair. You used, you can't go calling the CEO of the real company and finding out. I'm like, well, why not? Like, let's make it real. And so um, won the competition. Of course. And we did a whole, um, led to this whole conversation around, you have to step outside and get real world data to make these things make sense. That's a, that's a great lesson that, you know, it took me a long time to learn myself, which is you need to take what you're learning and apply it now mm -hmm. or else poof, it's gone. That's why we're in this podcast, aren't we? That is exactly why we're in this podcast. Realized you set me up. I did set you up. Uh, you set yourself up through a life of applying what you were learning. So mm -hmm. uh, you can blame it on yourself. So you, you graduate college, mm -hmm. um, you're out into the real world. Let's pick up the story there. Okay. Um, 
So I have a cool, so I, I began to uh, develop a curiosity for what makes people work and what makes teams work. And I was actually not very political and I didn't think I would stay at that company very long, but I was really interested in solving problems. And so I, I started just bouncing around in different jobs, not because I was applying or trying to scale, but I would, I would solve something and then I'd see something else broken in the company and I'd go over and say, hey, like, why is that not working? Uh, how do we figure that out together? And they'd be like, well, you want to do it? And so um, next thing you know, I kind of just got all these cool jobs and then jobs accumulate into perspective. And next thing you know, you get a chance to do cool things. So I was getting to consult with state governments and big companies on how do you really, how do you kind of pull multiple parts of healthcare together and business together with a strategic lens on them? And that was a lot of fun. And so I moved to Texas uh, doing that and uh, was having a blast, traveling too much, but having a blast. And my wife and I started going to a local church in San Antonio and loved it. And they were going through a transition to grow and eventually go multi-site, have multiple locations. And they were looking to hire someone to come in and do some leadership work and lead some new teams. And did not see that coming, but uh, actually left my job in this big corporation to go do some pastoring for a few years and uh, started a company on the side. And things kind of snowballed from there. So after a few years, I I got involved in a C12 group actually as a customer. So the company I'm now leading, the cool thing is in 2010, I was a customer. 2012, I left all those things to actually become a local leader for C12 running peer advisory groups in the San Antonio, Austin area. And uh, that scale in 2016, I threw my name in the hat as the probably least qualified, least educated, <laughs> youngest guy candidate to be the third CEO for the company. And by God's grace, here I am three years later. Um, so you, you obviously had a unique journey, mm -hmm. uh, bouncing around from, from thing to thing, but leading to ultimately where you are today. And as I understand it, you guys have done some great things at C12 since you've taken the reins and you're doing a bunch of good stuff, taking them to the next level. And we're going to be talking about, I think the, the ideas in essentialism and how they helped you go from where you guys were to where you are today. Mm -hmm. So what what attracted you to this idea in the first place? So I, th I think I've had a, a long obsession with the question of purpose and how do you live a life that is on purpose. Uh, I grew up with a tumultuous home and life where I saw a lot of lo people living lives of being a victim of circumstance. And then I'd see people who had just as difficult upbringings or circumstances, but seemed to still make progress. And I began finding a, a shared commonality of disciplines and plans. And so I think from, I remember a defining moment like age 12, realizing, man, having a plan changes outcomes. So I want to have a plan. So I've been on that kind of journey and I'd heard a number of people reference some quotes from essentialism that seemed to poke at questions I was, I was asking myself. And so it bumped itself up my reading list a few years ago. And it was, it was funny, we were talking just before we went on the air about you guys should have a, a podcast studio at C12 and you were telling me that uh, you had a podcast mm -hmm. at C12 and then you stopped doing it and I was asking you why. Mm -hmm. uh, and you said that it just wasn't essential. It was mm -hmm. a, many things you could be doing that are great, mm -hmm. but you need to decide which things are essential to, to what you're up to. So let's talk about the main ideas in this book and let's, mm -hmm. let's dig in. So I think the I think it's like literally in the very beginning of the book, there is a picture. So if you like picture books, 
page six of essentialism basically summarizes the whole book. You can, you don't like words, just look at the picture in page six. And it's this really artistic drawing of a circle with a bunch of arrows coming out of it compared to an arrow, another circle with just one arrow that goes really far. And something that clicked with me in the way Greg structured this book was the idea that our energies are really subject to the same principles of hydraulics or thermodynamics. And that is that in a, a volume, the more outputs is going to diminish the pressure and thus the distance it can travel. And so I remember looking at that circle with all these outputs and he made the point, we all think we can do everything and you can, you just can't do everything well. And looking at that circle going, it is, there's a fixed volume of energy I have and there's a fixed volume of things we can do. And there's lots of good opportunities and we can try to do all of them, but we'll probably do all of them mediocre. Or we could begin to shut off some of those valves and that will push all that energy in a, a concentric direction and we'll go much, much, much further. And so that that picture was one of those like inconvenient truths where you see it and you're like, darn it, that is right. It's law. It's thermodynamics. I can't, I can't change that. I can only harness that. I suffer from being that circle on the left. All even, the time. Even when I think I'm focusing. Mm-hmm. In that focus, I'll, ha- I'll I'll just start drawing a bunch of other arrows, and mm-hmm. so it's really hard to get out of that cycle. Um, specifically, what was going on in C twelve at the time that made you think that this was going to be something that was critical to the growth of the company? Well, you know, I think to be honest, I I didn't think it was going to do what it did. I was hoping it would help me figure out how to do ten things better, and not. Um, shut down that argument and make me have to do fewer things. So honestly, I think I was looking for hacks on how to be able to do more things well right? versus actually realize I was going to have to do few things better. So that was an inconvenient truth in process. So at the time, we had a lot of things going on. So I've got young kids. I'm passionate about a lot of different world change issues. And so I was on multiple nonprofit boards. I had started multiple nonprofit ventures in the city around different issues from poverty and homelessness to foster care and orphan care and just a variety of good things Yep, that were all, man, save the world. Let's do it. Yeah, We were trying to grow C12. I was trying to target, um, our, our vision is literally to change the world by advancing the gospel in the marketplace. And so when you've got this BHAG of changing the world, that's a pretty dangerous drug because it can make you take on all kinds of things. So we're trying to go in multiple cities and trying to get ready to go internationally. And then I had to like, you know, friends trying to make me do podcasts and and I was getting all these you shoulds and you coulds. And I think, um, especially if you're living a life of purpose, you don't usually wrestle with doing evil things. It's the thousand good things that need to be done and that you care about. Um, and you probably even could do, but should you do them? So we were, we were wrestling with, you know, here I was a new CEO, um, moving the office, new staff. We unleashed our first major wave of innovation of all of our products. We were dealing with succession, doing all these things concurrently. And in that, as you have new energy and new things, you get new people coming to you saying, well, that's cool. You should also. And it just became all these plus signs. And so that's these principles kind of intersect my life when this issue is happening everywhere. Home, church, friends, family, business. So where did you start? What was the, what was the first thing? Actually, let's talk about the mindset because we you you started the book reading it, hoping you were going to get some hacks. Mm-hmm. And there, there must have been a point where you gave up on that idea and switched over to Greg's idea, which is you need to do 
one, two, or three things really, really well. Yeah, going through a disciplined process of going, okay, what are all the what are all those output valves on my hydraulic energy pool? And then going, if I had to really force rake which ones I must do or I refuse to not do versus which things are really good I want to see happen, it's painful to start listing those things down. And so one of the first things I did was did a time audit with my wife. So one of the things like my wife was asking was she's like, I feel like you're working too much, too many hours. I think, is, what do we got to do? And so I, I went and audited the last 90 days of things I did and realized that only 67% of my business hours were actually truly spent on my role. And 33% of my time is being spent on good things sparked by my role. Mentoring here, speaking here, recording that, doing podcasts, being on this board, meeting with this person. And they're all good. And I can explain why it made sense, but they all came at an expense. And so I began to, um, I've for a long time used kind of Dave Ramsey principles of money. And so I managed my money really disciplined. I was using my time like a credit card. I was like, well, if I was to manage my time the same way I manage money, um, I'm overdrawn. And so I probably need to you know, snowball my debt and kind of get out of things. So I just began a massive expatriation of my time. And I had to go to boards I care about and say, hey, great mission. I need to roll off. And like, but I thought you cared. I thought you can. I was like, it's not about care. It's not about can. It's about must and should. And how, how was that emotionally? Because I imagine you're, you know, once you, when you got into those things, uh, best of intentions, everybody was super happy to have you on board. Mm-hmm. And now you're, at, you're having to go back on things that you said you were going to do. How, how was that emotionally? Oh, uh, like, a, like a, a thousand deaths. <laughs> it felt like death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, you realize you get addicted to being a, a messiah figure, to saving things and helping things. And I think one of the dangers can be, it actually masks a scarcity mindset of the universe that there's not enough or that you are the only source versus realizing there's we're not Luke Skywalker. There is other people out there. Um, just because I can doesn't mean I'm the only one who can. And sometimes until you step out, the the real Luke Skywalker, only then can he emerge. So um, like there was this case of a, a leader who was creating a um, human trafficking rescue center and was asking for my help. And it was right after I just decided to cut back from all these things. And they said, hey, seven sources have all said, you're the person who could help. Would you do it? I'm like, No. And they're like, but it's human trafficking and you could help with this. And I was like, I could, you're right. And I won't. And they're like, well, could you give just a little time? I'm like, no. And they're like, well, how could you say no to this? And I'm in my head, I'm like, I know I'm a jerk. Come on. And they're like, well, do you just give us an hour? And I said, no, I'm sticking to this essential plan. And they went, I'm just, I remember the word. She's like, I'm just so disappointed in you. And those words were just like <laughs> soul crushing. And she's like, I, you could help us help so many people and you're saying no. Yes. And she's like, is there any time we can meet? So uh, two months later, so I met with her again and she said, I'd like to come by and see you. And she's like, I just need to tell you how terribly disappointed I was in you. I was like, yes, can we just skip the end? I'm a, I'm a horrible human being. Now what? <laughs> and she said, and I want to thank you for what? She said, well, in your unavailability, it forced me to realize I put all my hope in you and it was actually limiting my thinking. And so when I finally accepted the fact like Mike was not going to save us, it opened up all these new possibilities and it um, we're going to be fine. And honestly, I don't, I don't think we need your help now. 
And there's this moment going, I wonder how many times I've actually been the obstacle or created dependency by my non-essentialism kind of hyperactivity. And so, um, but yeah, it's super painful to say no to cool things. It's super hard to say no to things that matter and when you can help people. But it's also really cool to see the fruit of essentialism later. So it's a painful process. Yeah. But I worth bet. it. So you're <clears throat> a new CEO mm-hmm. in this in this company that's been around for quite some time quite yeah, some time. Twenty six years. And you're young. Mm-hmm. You've got new ideas, uh, but mostly it sounds like you want to just stop doing a bunch of things that they had already done um, or kill ideas that were percolating up to the surface. Walk us through some of the things that you said no to mm-hmm. when you came aboard and you had this epiphany of a essentialism. Lots of things. I will say it is difficult. Mistakes I made was trying to uh, start and stop at the same time. So it is easier to actually go through a process of shutting off valves and then turning on valves versus trying to do both. You get, you create some turbulence. So I, I miscalculated that. So that's a whole other podcast of confession. Um, I think one example would be, so we had a product that had been this kind of sleepy product that had really grown on the side to become a a really sizable thing. We have our primary product has been serving CEOs and business owners in these round tables. And that'd been growing for 25 years, but about 15 years prior, out of a request of our customers, we'd started a complement product called Key Players. That's really for like managers, vice presidents, the management teams, these companies. And it was just meant to solve a pain point they had in implementation. We didn't advertise it. We didn't market it. We didn't have, we hadn't really invested the tools into it, but it had sleepily become this, you know, 500 person, 500 customer product line. And so we started looking at that, looking at the market saying, we could, we could frankly reach more people with that than we could with our core product if we wanted to put some energy behind it. So we started looking at all the things we could do to grow it. And the question began, who's our customer going to be? Do we want to go after every customer we possibly could in every context, or do we want to focus in on a particular context? And the real fork in the road was, do we want to develop this to be a product that serves just the CEOs who already buy our primary product or any executive in the marketplace? Well, any executive in the marketplace would be a massive play. I mean, we could 10x in tomorrow going after that. But we either really had to decide, is it going to be big market or micro market? And board discussions, stakeholder discussions, we concluded this, we really want this to be a unique product to maximize the output of our existing CEO customers. Well, that that said no to literally multiple millions of customers. But in saying no, it then crystallized all the products we were going to do in our product development process suddenly became about three or four key levers that were going to make that product serve our other customers well. Uh, we created something called a development action plan, a peer review workshop, just a couple tools that, get, that were actually simple to develop once we said we're only trying to solve for this one case and do it really, really well. Our beta gets rolled to market and long-time customers come back saying, I would have bought 10 times more if I'd seen that a long time ago. Like, where's that been? That's exactly what I need. We sold more new business in 90 days, the first beta round that we did in the previous six, seven, eight months combined, just kind of doing soft testing of it. And the feedback was consistently, this is right on target, but that's because we had a target and it was at the exclusion of a lot of other really good targets. So that's an example where essentialism changed the way we did product development and it delivered some really good results. 
why not go after the whole market? And these are these are the thoughts that are going through my head. Like that's a that's a dumb decision. Uh, <laughs> but when you when you when you think about it, you decide to go after the whole market. Now you like, how do we go get customers? Where where are we targeting? What things do we need to be good at? Do we need to do uh, Facebook ads? Do we need to do like LinkedIn strategy? And, and so the whole thing just becomes this all encompassing thing. Whereas if you're chunking it down to so we got to do this one specific thing mm-hmm. to your point the answers become a lot clearer and it's usually not a big deal to develop those things and at the same time it probably is a big deal to get those things right the amount of energy required to get the things right even when you make it so small mm-hmm. is still much more than you think yeah, sometimes going micro helps you solve the macro quicker counterintuitively like um, a friend of mine is involved in water purification projects and um, another friend's trying to bring clean water to the whole world. Meta idea. This other guy said, well, how do I bring clean water to everybody in Liberia? Really small. Well, by zeroing in on one country and saying, how do I solve it there? He actually found innovations that now that they've, they're going to accomplish that by the end of 2020. Literally every man and woman in Liberia will have clean drinking water. First time has ever been a country that that done. But the lessons in that are now being applicable to the guy trying to solve the whole world. And so I think some of essentialism is actually a precursor to the idea that made you want to go after everything. But ironically, it's it's until you're willing to go small, you can't go big. Yeah, that's like a a meta idea, I think. I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who solves big problems or the companies that are solving big problems now started off with solving one problem very, very well. Like Amazon with books is an example. Um, I know... Uh, a company in Toronto uh, called FreshBooks started off by focusing only on creative entrepreneurs, like creative freelancers, mm-hmm. and then grew into what what they are today. So it seems like an idea that just happens to be true, mm-hmm. that you need to start small and solve problems, and then you can move on to adjacent things and, and start to grow larger. Right after I read this, uh, a mentor called me one day. He helped me understand something that I thought I knew, but I didn't know. So uh, in the teachings of Jesus in the book of John, he has this parable where he describes our relationship to God as being like a vineyard and there being a, a vine dresser, which he says, that's God. And then he says, there's this the vine. He says, that's Jesus. And he says, we're each like branches with the purpose of bearing fruit. And then he describes the vine dresser's role to come and prune things. I knew the parable and this friend called me and said, Mike, um, what, bran- what kind of branches do you think Jesus says the vine dresser takes off the vine? I said, well, the, the dead ones. And I said, uh, nope. What do you mean? He's like, well, yeah, it says dead ones are taken off. But it says he prunes the ones that are good but don't produce fruit. And then it says he takes them off and he burns them. Why does he burn them? And I was like, I don't know. Is it some like apocalyptic reference to hell or something? Like I, I just hadn't thought about it that much. And and he challenged me to talk to, a, to an actual vineyard owner about the process. And what was interesting is that a vine dresser actually has to go and look at grapevines. And if there's a branch that's got beautiful foliage, but isn't producing grapes, you really have to trim off every branch that isn't grape producing so that it channels all the nutrients to the production of grapes. And the danger is the plant is actually prone to produce really pretty branches that are very lush and look good for photographs, but don't produce grapes, which is where the money is. And so you have to constantly trim back all these beautiful branches to keep fruit. Then if you trim the branches off, if you drop them to the ground, the branches will actually put saplings into the dirt and draw nutrients out of the soil and they'll actually produce non-fruit-bearing plants that rob the nutrients from the soil and drain the grapes. 
So you literally have to trim and then go burn them. Otherwise, they'll always be robbing the, the core objective, which is these grapes. And he said, well, that's, that's life. Like you have to be pruning really good things and then resist the temptation just to dial things back, but literally cut them off so that everything keeps flowing to the goal. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good analogy. So Jesus beat Greg McCune to the essentialism idea. I just didn't get it. <laughs> but now you got it. Now I got it. Let's talk about an example of one of those instances where you pruned a branch and you threw it in the furnace and what happened? I think the easiest thing for me is thinking about time. So personally, like I got off three nonprofit boards and frankly, those, those nonprofits are flourishing. Um, we've focused our energy on, um, like we did a bunch of customer surveying and we're using the uh, Reichelds net promoter score questions. And we started finding markets where we had low NPS and we started zeroing in. Well, what does our customer say? And we had a list of things we wanted to do, but we're like, well, the customer says this is what they're frustrated by. And so we put all of our energy one year, going, let's, let's solve these primary gap areas. And our net promoter score went from 65, which is already pretty decent. And our goal is, can we get that to 70 by putting all this energy on solving these two big gaps? We attacked it a year later, our NPS went from 65 to 75, which is massive for a mature business. Um, we didn't expect that. Consultants didn't say you could do that. But it was really because we put so much energy on solving problems specifically versus tackling the 18 ideas on our idea board. One of the previous interviews was with Graham Weston and he, we talked about the net promoter score and I forget where the line is of like world-class, mm -hmm. but I feel like it had to be like 75 is mm -hmm. in the stratosphere. Yeah. You, somewhere. It's you're usually it's happy ridiculous. once you get beyond 60, you're like, we're doing pretty darn good then. Right. 70, you're like, okay, quality brand. Right. Now I think you and I were speaking previously about, your growth plans. So mm -hmm. we, we talked about a product, mm -hmm. but you also yeah. were looking to expand in a whole yeah. bunch of really cool cities. Let's talk a little bit about that. So the irony of this, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually a customer of my own business again. So I, I'm a dues paying member of a group like you are. And so I was presenting my master plan for world domination and a new member in my group, I was talking about Manhattan and Miami and Seattle and all these cool spots. And she said, Hey, well, why? So you're going to Manhattan. I was like, yeah, we're going to change the world. We're going to go to Manhattan. She's like, why? I'm like, well, it's New York. I mean, it's obvious. And she said, well, how's your, how's your Houston market? I said, well, it's strong. We got good presence there. She's like, well, what percent of the market do you think you're at compared to what you could be? I was like, oh, we're probably like 5% of market potential. And she's like, oh, if you were to apply all the energy it would take to launch Manhattan to really cracking the nut in Houston, how much farther would you be in one year? we're going to do both. We're going to launch Manhattan and grow in Houston. And she said, why? I said, because the mission. And she said, well, isn't it, what if it's hubris? It's like, what if it's just cooler to be saying you're doing 15 new cities than to say, I'm going to really solve a couple key cities. Because that same energy applied in concentration locally could probably make you go farther faster. It was one of those really inconvenient conversation cycles. I went back to my team and we actually inverted our whole business plan. We said next year, instead of doing 15 new cities, we're only going to do four. And we're going to put all the RSC energy to going deeper in existing cities. And so that's actually continued to be part of our campaign is let's go really deep in markets and make sure we get positions of brand strength and grow from there versus stretching ourselves beyond our, really our service model capacity anyway. So that, that 
that simple questioning, applying essentialism, even to market targeting and market growth prioritization has um, made us healthier and stronger. I imagine after that session, you had to go back to the team. So I'm, I'm imagining you had already said to the team, we're going to go to Manhattan. Like we're mm-hmm. going to go do this. Everyone's yep. pumped. We're going to Manhattan. Yep. And you got to come back. After, and I'm sure you thought about this mm-hmm. for some time and, you know, eat crow a little bit yep. and say, we're not going to Manhattan. We're, yep. we're, we're going to Houston. Mm-hmm. And Houston's not as cool as going to Manhattan. Nothing, nothing, not to offend Houstonians. Yeah, no, no, nothing to offend Houstonians. I think we're not, uh, we're blocking everybody from Houston from hearing this. Only in Manhattan will this podcast (laughs) be broadcast. Talk a little bit about that. One of the things I think all entrepreneurs struggle with is this this push and pull Mm -hmm. of we're going to do new things and then we got to scale them back. I know I suffer from this quite a bit. Mm -hmm. How did you deal with the staff who might see you as a flip flopper? Hmm. a little bit mm-hmm. to get behind the new vision of, okay, we're going to focus and do some essential things. And this was an important thing for us to go through, but here's the essential path. Uh, years ago, I got to go spend a week with Gary Hamill and a bunch of guys from IDEO in San Jose. And Gary, was, he had just written the book, The Future of Management. And he had a very helpful definition of the word innovation for me. He said, I think what's necessary to be innovative in this new economy is the ability to, in one hand, be entirely committed to a, a course of action and entirely tentative based upon information and to not feel like those is a, a counter, you know, contradiction of terms. And so we were absolutely committed to launching New York, and yet we had this commitment to, to data and learning. And so it was actually a chance to model, come back and saying, okay, our mission isn't changing, but if we stop and really look at return on investment energies, the better play for us to accomplish the mission that took us to New York would be spent going to these places. And um, it'd be pride that would make us keep doing that if we were to press forward. Um, it is actually still something I get asked about because I made such a big splash on New York. Um, I probably every month have someone who comes to say, whatever happened to New York? Why aren't you doing that? And uh, why not? And we probably will end up in New York one day, but we're going to measure our mission and that uh, that lesson has helped us really make sure we get down to what are the real results we're after, which is actually the first core value in our company is results matter. And uh, that has led us to look at things. So market prioritization, um, pipelines. So uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, you launch a new product and you want to get web hits, you want to get leads, you want to get SEO, click-through rates and such. And so we started going back and saying, where are we mistaking more for better? And where could less be more? And... Um, that constant evaluating and executing cycle that McEwen, he, I think he says you explore, eliminate, execute, and just keep cycling. We went and realized that we had web traffic that looked really cool, but it wasn't the traffic we wanted. And so we kind of reallocated our SEO spend, cut our web traffic down in half, but our qualified lead rates went up three times. Uh, our cost per lead acquisition is like 10% of what it was. And so you go, well, okay, that's smart. So that's less equals more. Um, our funnels for certain types of leads, like one customer type, we had a ratio of 74 uh, leads to one customer conversion. We got that down to 26 to one. All those things come from getting this disciplined lens of what's actually accomplishing the goal we must accomplish versus just creating noise for noise sake. And so as a, particularly as a small um, bootstrap business, that is really key because you can bleed yourself out trying to make noise in all the wrong places. Sure. 
for those of you who are listening, uh, that conversion rate in like the digital product world still seems very low. But what we're talking about here is a is a product that's it's uh, it's an expensive product compared to what you might you know. It's not buying a book, it's right? An, it's not buying. It's not an e-com transaction, right? So right. this this is this is a significant commitment that people are making here. Mm-hmm. What surprised you throughout this entire process of applying essentialism to your business? It surprised me. What surprised me is that you're never done. So I think you go through a, a massive uh, pruning process and you feel the high of, oh, I did it. I'm done saying no. And the problem is when you say no to a bunch of things, which just makes your yes stronger, that yes then takes you farther and that then attracts a thousand new opportunities and even more attractive, why don't yous and why why you really shoulds and it actually gets harder and harder and harder. My wife actually began to, uh, she'll always say it's sexy when you say no to things. So I'll come home and she'll say, how many things did you say no to today? <laughs> and I said, the problem is I, I've said no to, I've said no to more things than ever before, but I'm being offered more things than ever before as well. So keeping that ratio positive is a, a perpetual thing. And so we'll, we'll celebrate this narrowing process and then we'll find ourselves bloated again. And just realizing you're never done. Like essentialism is a, it's a mindset and it's a perpetual discipline. It's not an event. It's not a tactic you deploy. It has to be a, a ruthless perpetual thing. And how do you keep it top of mind? What are, what are the practical things you do to make sure that you're always asking yourself that question? Um, I try to put accountability in my life. Um, we try to make sure we are speaking to the mission all the time. We are measuring the right things all the time. Um, and having constant assessment cycles of, you know, what, what's on there, what matters and figuring out how to, so the tension becomes, um, if you drill down essentialism only to the one thing, we go, well, where do you do experiments and where do you innovate? And so figuring out how to allocate budget of time and energy towards the third box kind of innovation stuff you need to do while preserving first box operations to use kind of a VJ, um, three box innovation instead of vernacular, um, putting systems in place to say, we're going to innovate here within this allowance and we're going to drive core things here and having feedback loops to assess frequently. Um, I've been going through some, um, a gospel centered life design process called unique, which um, had me look at kind of all the roles in my life even and evaluate those things on key measures and then set up weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, quarterly kind of assessments, like where's the drift, what's on target. And so I think it's a constant, um, Increasing the frequency of course corrections. And it sounds like to me that what you're saying is like sometimes you could probably go too far. Mm-hmm. And but I, I'll, I'll posit this as a question um, or maybe a statement. It seems to me like most people struggle with doing too much and not with doing too little, or at least entrepreneurs. Like I think there's the argument that big companies get far too focused on execution and not on <clears throat> trying to disrupt what they're doing. But for entrepreneurs mm-hmm. who are wired differently than most people, I think mm-hmm. that becomes the common issue. And you, you've dealt with more entrepreneurs than mm-hmm. most people on the planet. So what, what have you found through your, your journeys working with thousands of entrepreneurs? Maybe let me use a, uh, an analogy that's universal regardless of your role. Um, so one of my passion, I came from a family with lots of divorces and lots of marriage issues. And so I had a lot of anxiety about the idea of getting married. So my wife and I went through counseling and conferences and books, and we kind of made uh, marriage a bit of an obsession topic for us. 
because I, I just fundamentally don't believe we know how to do it well. And uh, read some great books along the way. One was this book called Love and Respect. And it looked at like, what do men and women need? And what are the things that make a man feel respected or make a woman feel loved? And there's and it breaks down some very tactical things. It doesn't stay esoteric. And what I found in working with couples and looking at my own marriage is that most people are exhausted doing the best they know. In fact, they're usually doing too much, but they're spending them in the wrong currencies, essentially. And so you may say, well, I'm doing this and this and this and this. Well, it doesn't matter if you're doing eight things. If you're missing the one thing that matters to your spouse, then she doesn't feel loved. And what if you actually don't need to do more? You just need to consolidate all that energy into the right currency that then creates a positive cycle in your marriage. And 90% of the time I found that people were not lacking effort. They were lacking focus. And it was just off-target expenditure of energy. And same thing in business is you know, we found we were spending in print. We were doing Inc. Magazine, Forbes Magazine, this website, this social media channel. We were, we were spending a lot. We could actually spend half as much on the right channels, the right messaging, and reach more people and actually advance our mission better. And so the misnomer that more, um, especially in the whole world, is telling you, you got to do this and, and, and. Um, and it's a, it's a paradox. So I'm a big believer in Jim Collins, the power of um, and. So usually the tyranny of or is what hurts us, but I think as entrepreneurs, um, it's the, uh, we have to always be going back to prune and make sure that we're uh, not letting and symbols actually diffuse our collective energy. Because usually if you're, I mean, as you're doing a startup, I've done startups, you've got very finite manpower. And so it's not that it's not feasible. It's just, is it reasonable and effective? Yeah. And so, yeah, working with entrepreneurs, there's usually legacy. Um, that customer used to be good. That product used to work. Uh, we always have advertised in that channel. Um, it's the curse of what once was. It, keeping you from looking at what is. And that's a good point too, is what used to be essential may not be essential now. Yeah. And I think that's the other frustrating part. Yeah. You could go through an essentialism exercise like I did and I arrived at an essential plan for this season, but it's just that it's a season. Markets change, kids change, you change, products evolve. To, um, one of my favorite nineties authors was um, Andrew Groves when he wrote Only the Paranoid Survive. And he talked about the strategic inflection point, right? You've got this product that is working. Technology, regulatory environments, consumer behavior changes, and you've reached this point where status quo won't work. It was great. That microchip was awesome, and now it's not. And so that's the job of leadership is to constantly be evaluating. So let's switch gears and, and wrap up the interview. And I don't know how long this is going to take, but I, I think you've got a pretty interesting story around results and how you've changed some of the results in, in the company in a, in a short amount of time. What has applying the principles and essentialism brought your business? So applying the principles of essentialism has helped us um, prioritize our innovation sequence. It's helped us decide of all the things we could do, which things most matter and separate. Um, it's helped us push for data to make sure we aren't doing a battle of emotions because I got things I want and you got things you want and someone else got something they don't want, but the data helps us know which things to go after and to prioritize to that. So it's helped us be a better steward of energy. That's helped us uh, actually deploy more change. It's helped us uh, drive customer satisfaction, talked about NPS. It's drived our efficiency of ad spend. It's um, increased our, um, our average performance of a market. 
And so again, we're getting our markets to stronger positions of growth. And so competitively in the marketplace, even we've managed to be the only player in our industry that's had net, net organic growth year after year after year, uh, particularly in the domestic market. And then it's helped us um, in saying no to lots of other things. We've even launched internationally and seen faster growth there than any of our peers have. And I think it's because um, we set our terms to a, a real laser focus. And have you found, and there's a lot of people competing in your in your space, mm-hmm. both directly in your space mm-hmm. and adjuncts yep. to your space. Um, have you found that your competitors don't have the same focus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I found, I, and I have to attribute my predecessor. So I'm the third guy to lead the company. And looking back, there was a number of key times where there's revenue opportunities to add complementary products that are not bad but they divert your attention. And then you, you're kind of slaved to those revenue sources and you begin to complicate your value proposition. Um, and so by staying really focused on a couple of key things, what it's done is it's channeled our, our innovation to be on those points versus diffused across multiple things. And so, you know, if you think about if, if Intel was trying to be a, a laptop maker and a phone maker and a um, tablet maker and be a chip maker, I don't think Intel would be who it is today. But they go, we're going to make the chips and we're going to sell to people who we could probably get in those businesses, but we pro- they probably couldn't make the iPad Pro and the chip. And so we're trying to say, what's the thing we're going to be the chip for? And let's just stay on that. And it's allowed us to innovate more times, make more mistakes and recover from them more quickly than a lot of our competitors. Awesome. Well, I want to wrap this up by saying thank you so much for being here. This has been fascinating. I'm sure we could talk for hours and mm-hmm. maybe we'll have you on on season two to talk about many of the other fascinating things that you guys are working on. Uh, but if people want to find out more about who you are and what you do, where should they go? Yeah. So you go to c12group.com. So C the number 12. Um, and again, if, if it's a business that is ran by someone who's a, a believer in the person of Jesus and is interested in how their faith could impact their work and believes that building a great business could actually accomplish a greater purpose, then check out c12group.com. We're in, I think, 37 states and four countries and you know, eventually the world, but we're going to take our time getting there. And not Manhattan. Not Manhattan. We are in Boston, Newark, New Jersey, and Connecticut, so it's so close. So close. So you close. might as well go. You might as well go to New York. Now. Might as well. Someday. Thanks, Mike. Action Path is a production of Geekdom Media in association with Game Day Media Enterprises. Executive producers are Lorenzo Gomez III, John Garcia, Jason Barrera, and Michael Largent. If you want access to summaries and takeaways from hundreds of business books, check out Steve's company, Read It For Me, at readit4.me. That's readit4.me.